Podcast 58, Review of Ben Law's Roundwood Timber Framing Movie. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. All right, so we watched this... uh this DVD, Roundwood Timber Framing, and, and it's got superhero Ben Law, um, who, you know, when I, I can't think of the word forest anymore because I, I, it's like forest sounds like a dirty word, although he used this dirty word at one time in the DVD. I think of woodland because I kind of picture, you know, a forest is this bunch of trees without Ben Law. A woodland is this bunch of trees with <laughs> Ben Law, uh, and and of course you could substitute somebody else for Ben Law, but you know he'd have to be he or she. So, sorry, almost stumbled there. Uh, would have to be, that person would have to be Ben Law esque, you know, <laughs> kind of like kind of like developing a symbiotic relationship with neighbors with with, with nature. So uh, this DVD uh, is available at permaculture.co.uk. That's uh, that's that place where uh, Maddie Harlan rules as queen of permaculture. Uh, yeah, that's her throne there. So you, uh, and that, so you can go buy the DVD there. All right, so uh, I'm here with... Krista. And Caleb. And uh, uh, so I think one of the most important questions that I have is that um, uh, at the end of the movie, there was this uh, song that was being played, and I didn't understand how it tied in. <laughs> and the song says... Nice and smooth for the ladies. <laughs> Repeatedly. So, over and over again. Yeah. Nice it, and smooth. It is nice and smooth for the ladies, I believe. Okay. All right. Yeah. So what does, it, what does that mean, Krista? I think it's uh, how smooth the round wood is. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought it was because Bin Laden didn't have a lot of hair on his head. So he was like <laughs> shaving his head. And he's not a bearded guy. So, like, maybe that's what it meant, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. Could be. For the ladies. <laughs> I'm not sure how that tied into the round wood timber framing, except for maybe that's what it is, like as opposed to rough cut lumber. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, keep, you keep round wood you keep smooth you know, for the ladies. For the ladies. You know? um, ben seems to have it figured out. The ladies love Ben Law. Is that is that what it is? He seems to have it figured out here. He does seem pretty cool, um, <laughs> but I apparently, when it comes to the kind of fellow the the gals are hot for, I have no idea. <laughs> Krista, how did how did Ben Law was he like was he like the, the man for you? Well, he has round wood. <laughs> That's right. There was a lot of round wood, and round wood's an important feature for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, I, I'm glad we got that worked out. So. <clears throat> Um, somehow we had a hell of a time getting this DVD to play, and and uh, we finally got it going all right. But it, it seemed to want to like not show us the menu options, and and so we. But maybe that's, that's widescreen. It was widescreen, and that was the issue. The DVD player didn't want to play widescreen. Your DVD player is yeah. not widescreen savvy, and so it was like saying no. Something like that. Okay. It was not nice and smooth for the ladies. All right. The DVD, well, it feels smooth when you actually touch it, but and it's round. And so 
but um, yeah, and the DVD case actually has looks and appears like it has very little plastic in the packaging, which is nice. Oh yeah, what is that stuff? It's squishy. Ah, neat. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's mushroom spore stuff. All right, all right. Well, anyway, so the um, but we finally got the DVD going. We were kind of uh, having a hard time navigating, but we got it so we could show the widescreen. It took some. You had to pull out another contraption, and and we got it going. Um, one of the things we ended up watching, I guess we ended up watching some of the extra bits, but at the beginning, thinking that we were starting the show, but instead it was like the add-on things. What do they call that? Extras. Extras. Is that extras? Mm-hmm. So we were watching extras. So then uh, they were showing us their tools mm-hmm. for the ladies. <laughs> Not for the round wood. Tools for the wood. Tools for the round wood. In fact, the first thing I wrote down was this rounding plane, which just looked like quite the tool. It, it was uh, you kind of rough you kind of rough out your peg, and then you take this uh, rounding you. you it, it, well, first it's on square, and then you draw knife it to a more octagonal or round shape, and then you use kind of a hand pencil sharpener that twists around the wood. There, see, I was struggling with talking about the pencil sharpener twisting around the wood, trying to think, how the hell do you describe this thing? But it, it kind of looked like you were going to um, um, screw the wood. You were going to kind of like drive a big screw down the wood, but it had like a, a blade in it that would kind of keep the wood at a consistent size of rounditude. And it used leverage like a wing nut, basically two handles on the side like a wing nut that you yeah. screw down the peg. Damn, you're good at this. All right. I was struggling trying to figure out how to convey that in an audio format. Um, But I thought that was a cool contraption. Absolutely. Um, So uh, we all all took a bunch of notes here. Did you guys mention that they were using, they were basically making dowels for the pegs for the the traditional wood joinery is what they were actually using the the, uh, peg maker for there? So, Caleb, this might be a good time to kind of talk about your experience with timber framing stuff. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in a uh, family with a with a logging background, uh, and uh, as I kind of started doing that, I was looking for something else. So I ended up going to a uh, a log and timber framing school in Canada, actually called the Island School of Building Arts. I would uh, definitely highly recommend that to anybody looking for this sort of thing. And was that an inland school? Uh, no, it's actually on uh, just off Vancouver Island on a small island called Gabriola. Uh, hence the name Island School. Yes, yeah, that's where the I came from. Uh, so I spent some time up there, and I had been around log buildings and uh, not so much traditional timber framing, but log building. My dad built a, a log home; was the first home that he had built. When um, I came back from that uh, with a, with a lot of knowledge, uh, came back, worked for a few other companies for a few years, and then uh, I also ran and uh, still do run my own uh, small timber framing and log home building company. I've got a, a small sawmill. Uh, I'm more doing it on the side now, doing uh, some different alternative energy uh, things for another company now. But So, yeah, I had some experience doing quite a few different uh, traditional-type timber frame with uh, wood-on-wood joinery uh, pegged with, with, a, with a wooden dowel as well. So very, very few metal fasteners, uh, a lot of handcrafted joinery uh, in the in the traditional sense, in these traditions that literally are thousands of years old. So, 
Now, I think we were seeing some stuff being done with Greenwood, and some of the stuff that you've got, you have training in, is a little unusual in that it's also Greenwood. Uh, yeah, I've definitely been had some experience with using Greenwood and uh, some of the the practices and of doing that and the things that you really need to be careful of. Uh, obviously, there's with Greenwood shrinking. There's obviously some aesthetic issues, but there's uh, some potential for some serious structural failures too, which um, Ben didn't go too much into. He didn't really go into the joinery in, in real depth, but also a lot of the joinery that he's using is also fairly fairly basic joinery as well. So from what I saw, there wasn't a major issue there. But there's a lot of advantages to using Greenwood, and there's some disadvantages. One of the disadvantages was watching eight people carry a short, you know, eight-foot-long log that was only seven, eight inches in diameter, and it took eight people to move it, and it looked like they were working really, really hard. So it was probably cut, like, within the last 20 minutes. Yeah, everything there looked like it was very, very green. Uh, they were popping all the bark off with a, with a spud, and in order to do that, it's it's got to be very, very green uh, with the sap really flowing for it to pop off there fairly easy. Uh, so now when you, when, you know, they're going to peel the bark off, well, first of all, before I get into that stuff, i got all kinds of questions. So, so, Chris, it's your chance, it's your opportunity to talk about your experience in this space. Uh, my experience is to, I don't know, I guess I've just been with Caleb through the journey of going to the school. I went to visit him at the school and start his business afterwards, and my family is involved in construction in Bozeman. So I don't do a lot of it, but I observe a lot, and I've also done some documentations, um, like a multimedia piece about a bench shelter project here in Missoula. So I do know, I'm familiar with it. I don't do all the work. A little bit of joinery, a little bit of cutting, but... So, so you're savvy. You're at least a little bit, probably more savvy than me, anyway, on this. But, but I got to tell you though, when you, see, you mentioned Bozeman. You know, the number one question that I get uh, in email is, I, I get email from people that say, "Oh, I see you're from, uh, you live in Missoula," and uh, you know, I've got a cousin in Bozeman, you know, <laughs> and uh, so then they want to go. I guess they're what they're they're fishing to see if I know this person in Bozeman. Um, and and I don't, I don't I think I now know one person from Bozeman. That would be your sister who was here earlier today. Well, and we met some folks last weekend at Toby's from Bozeman. Some real oh, folks. Oh right, those people were from Bozeman. Yeah. I thought they were from outside of Bozeman, but you're right. Well, some of them were from yeah. Bozeman. The some greater of them are Bozeman, near area. Bozeman <clears throat> Which is the coolest part of Bozeman, anyway? Everyone knows. Um, Bozeman has parts. Okay. Uh, good to know. I guess I just see a couple of fast food joints on the side of the freeway while we were driving by it, and that was about, well, there's Bozeman. There it is. Okay. But it's bigger than that, I'm sure. I hear there's a college there and stuff. So, yeah, okay. All right. So uh, so moving right along. Now, I was trying to ask. Oh, oh, I remember now. So they went and they took a spud and they peeled the bark off of some of that wood. And um, and my experience is, is that when you do that, we were talking about that a little bit earlier, like three days later, all that sappy, goopy crap on the outside of the log gets covered in mildew. 
It's definitely possible. Yeah, it's not something you want to, when the the customer comes to look at their beautiful log home, you don't want them to come on the day when it's starting to turn black from mildew. So there's some ways to prevent that, too, and uh, Ben didn't talk about that too much. I'd be curious to see what his uh, natural methods of that were, too. We uh, also talked quite a bit about letting that wood dry a little bit beforehand. Uh, there's, there's some big advantages to actually letting the bark fall off on its own or uh, winter cutting the wood. Obviously, there's time time constraints, too. Uh, if you if you only have a short window of opportunity to actually get there and build the building. But uh, my, my personal way of doing it is I, I like using wood that isn't necessarily green or dry, but has uh, been allowed to set until the bark starts falling off on its own. I find that that's a good point where the, the wood has relaxed a lot itself, so you can actually read the grain and the, and the check line, see where the tension is in the wood. It's also a lot lighter to handle. Um, and the, the biggest thing, though, is really being able to read the wood and where the checks are and, and what tension is built into that wood before you start using it in a structure. You obviously don't. With green wood, there's a tendency, a possibility for wood to start moving after it's been in. And I've seen wood, depending on how the tension's grown in it, I mean, move six to eight inch crown in it fairly easily. So that's, so that's the thing I'm thinking about is like, you know, with green wood, um, I know. I know that uh, there's a lot of stuff, like a lot of people will make really nice chairs with green wood, and, and they've designed it in such a way that they, you know, they've, they've figured out how it's all going to shrink and, and as, it, as it dries, and, um, um, and then it'll be awesome. That would be wonderful. But um, uh, I, I, have, I looked at the structure, and that was the first thing that was popping on my head is, like, that wood's going to start shrinking, and everything's going to go to hell. But they must have figured it out, so it doesn't. Uh, they, they, they did neglect the part about the, the mildew, and I guess you could say to somebody, like, look, it's all spotty. We did that on purpose to make it all pretty leopardy spotty, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah it's uh, something there, you know. Some of that mildew did show up later on in the frame, too. You could see just a little bit of it. But I should mention, you know, all my experience isn't with uh, with hardwoods like they were using, too. I think it was a lot of uh, chestnut, some oak. He did mention locusts. I can't remember what the other one was in there, too. Cypress. Cypress, yeah. He mentioned wood, Port Orford cypress, I believe that he mentioned it. I've used it here as uh, Port Orford cedar is what we call it. It looked pretty similar. Uh, but all my experience really have been with... Uh, with conifers and, and different pines, firs, cedars. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So we, uh, I, I went and uh, we, we stopped for a minute. We went to go look up what's the difference between cypress and cedar, because um, he kept throwing those out all the time, but he kept saying Port Orford cedar and Port Orford cypress. So now we had to go have a little bit of time with Google. And according to Wikipedia, it's like they're damn close, so close that people often interchange the words. They might actually be exactly the same thing, but some nitpickers at Wikipedia are saying, oh, no, one is three inches taller than the other or something like that. Yeah, it says here that in its native range, it's exclusively called Port Orford Cedar, but the nursery trade mostly refers to it as Lawson Cypress. So basically, it's like uh, we're, we're going we're gonna, to um, respect regional 
dialect. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in some regions, they call it a fucking tree, and so we're going to go ahead and stick to that. And and in other places, they call it something else, and that's those, uh, th- that's those people that went to high school. And so who gives a shit what they have to say? I think the real question is what would be considered something nice and smooth for the ladies? <laughs> <laughs> well, we could probably polish that wood a bit. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I think we've, we've got that item off of the list. Um, how about girdling trees? We were talking about green wood. Oh, yeah. Let's do that. Let's go. Ready? Go. <laughs> so the, the the technique and the idea behind girdling a tree is that uh, you go down to basically the base of the tree and uh, you girdle it, which means you cut uh, through for the ladies, for the ladies, <laughs> or for other people, I guess, too, <laughs> for building purposes. But basically, you cut. What do you call those kind of people? <laughs> Distractions. <laughs> so the idea is you go through and you cut the cambium layer. Which is where most of the uh, the sap and the nutrients are running through the outside of the tree. It, it doesn't need to be a very deep cut; uh, just it's just on the inside of the bark. And if you are to girdle the tree, it actually stops the the flow to the rest of the tree, and the tree will die. Um, but it will still be standing as it's dead, which is actually one of the best ways for a tree to to dry out. Is actually standing dead timber is actually a, a really good way to dry it from uh, a checking standpoint and. and a few other things. So if you let it just girdle for, for a little bit of time, uh, also standing straight up, they have a tendency to not bow as much, too. Traditionally, actually, it, the trees were girdled almost exclusively because they, you know, it took a lot of manpower to drag a big green tree out of the woods. So I know uh, it, it, it takes eight. We, we saw that in the video. It takes yeah. eight for a short log. It, it takes eight for a log that's only uh, about 12 feet long, and maybe we should be talking in meters. I don't know. But <laughs> it's only about 12 feet long, and that one was only about 6 to 8 inches in diameter. I mean, we're talking about a very lar- a small tree. So when you start talking about some of the really large ones from large ones from traditional building practices, uh, like a lot of the Scandinavian countries, the Japanese did it. Uh, I'm sure the Europeans did it as well. They would actually go out <clears throat> and girdle the trees uh, and then come back the next year and cut them down and then drag them to the building sites. And that's one of the ways that they were able to get these really large uh, tree trunks in for, for the large, uh, like the stay of churches and the uh, the large Japanese temples, too. I bet Dick Prenicky could move one of those wet logs by himself. Possibly. Maybe downhill. <laughs> well, so when he goes back to build his cabin, it's like, oh, here's this pile of logs I set up last fall where I want to build the cabin, and now they're dry. And it's kind of like, you got to be kidding me. He moved all those logs while they were wet to that spot. I think he actually went out and cut some of those trees before. So we're talking about Dick Prenicky from uh, Alone in the Wilderness. I believe we were talking about the movie. Yeah, yeah the movie. The movie is Alone in the Wilderness. And, and the book is called One Man's Wilderness, I believe. Uh, so I've seen both. But I, I believe that... If I recall right in the book, he actually went up and cut those trees beforehand. Before He kind of found where he wanted to live. He went up and cut them, and then he went back up later and drug them out of the woods. But he was he also built that cabin with, with pretty small wood, but he also did it all by himself, which I don't care how small the wood is. That is still a feat. 
So yeah, it, it seemed to me like he did cut it before, mm-hmm. and and maybe he, maybe it was like a couple years before, where maybe he did do the girdle thing or something like that. But when when he starts the movie, then they're already in this crisscrossy pile nearby, and so he's already lugged them over. Well, anyway, so <clears throat> what were we talking about? Greenwood. <clears throat> And other uh, the girdling thing, the yeah. girdling, and so then you girdle it, it dries out, you cut it down, and now it's like five times lighter, eighty percent less weight because all the water's gone. And um, now, then you and I spent a fair bit of time talking about like because um, I think you're gonna do round wood. It's going to be just awesome. It's going to be. You're, it's all set to go. Uh, the only thing is, is that you can't be doing green wood like work with it. But <clears throat> it'll be fine. I mean, even if it checks, it'll be fine. It'll still be just great. But if you're going to try and take a sawmill to it, that check could be a problem. Yeah, and that comes into reading the wood and placing it in different parts of the building too. I think is a, is a really big part of it. Uh, there's, is, is reading the wood is not every every log is not created equal. It depends on where they were growing and what kind of tensions were built in them from the wind and different things too, where those checks are are put, and also the growth rate too will determine how they check and the drying rate. I mean, I, I kind of think that you know, uh, if it's in the summertime, if you ever cut a tree in the summertime, you probably need to mill it right away. But then if you're going to cut it like in the fall, you could wait several months. You'd probably be just fine. And then you were saying something about like you like to monitor it carefully and and then mill it like before it checks and um, but you know after it's dried a bit because then it's a little easier to work. And then of course but if it checks, well that sucks. Yeah, and there, there's possibilities of it checking afterwards too, especially with timbers. Uh, they they actually have a tendency to check even afterwards. If you're cutting two by fours or one by material, obviously you can't. You don't want hardly any checks because that's going to ruin your boards. But if you're going in and you're cutting a square eight by eight timber out of a ten inch log, the checks don't matter so much. And cutting it after it's begun checking, I can actually determine of which face I want that check to be on. So my my preferred method. Uh, winter cut logs are always the best because the sap's down. Uh, they tend to hold the bark a little bit longer. It, uh, they, they shrink and they move a lot slower. Uh, there's not such extremes of high moisture. If you cut a log in the spring when the sap is really flowing and fall it and then it sits in July and it's 95 degrees out and the wind's blowing, then you're, you're probably going to get a lot more checking at than if you would have cut it in the wintertime. Okay. So <clears throat> the next topic I have down here is uh, cutting shingles. So this particular structure that was in the movie, it was done dominantly with round wood. So there was a lot of interesting round wood stuff that was done. But the floors were mostly sawn wood. And so the floor joists were all all sawn wood with uh, the, the girders running across were all round wood. And and then the flooring itself was all sawn wood. Yeah. So you know you do realize that in this this audio media that if you nod your head they can't hear it. <laughs> I was nodding for you. Okay. Okay. Oh. <laughs> you you really wanted to make sure that the people listening didn't hear that the pod people. Pod people. Yeah. One other thing about Greenwood too before we skip past I guess that that's a good point that we didn't mention was uh, the workability of Greenwood just from a, a hand tools aspect with chisels and it is so much easier to work with Greenwood. I mean it. 
like butter. That's exactly what I was going to say. It shaves <laughs> off just like butter. So as you get into some of the drier wood, I mean, man, it can get hard to work. So there's there's different techniques. There's different uh, from even the angles of your, your hand tools, of your chisels, and the types of saws and the curve width and stuff that you use. So there's, there's ways to work with both. And so there's advantages to both. But it, they're all things to keep in mind. So I think, yeah, I think the big thing is going to be shrinkage. I mean, if you ignore the part about the sapwood getting covered in mildew, then the next big thing is going to be yeah, how it shrinks. And, and, so, and then the thing is, is that different woods are going to shrink at different rates. And then it seems like a big part of it is you've got to kind of be a little bit savvy about that. And then plus, if your wood's already a few weeks old, it's already done some shrinking. So you've got to work that into the equation also. And so um, the other thing is, is that usually the thickness of the wood shrinks more than the length of the wood. Now, do you know any of the numbers for shrinkage? Uh, I have a whole library of books. I could go get the exact specification, but it has a lot to do with, um, I'm trying to think, the easiest way to really describe it is if you take, you look at the end, <clears throat> the end grain of a log. You just cut the bottom end of it off at the stump. You're looking at it, uh, and you've got circles, and then you've got all these rings of circles inside that are each year's growth. Well, the place that it really shrinks the most is around that outside edge. So if you were to take the circle, that outside circumference is actually where it shrinks the most. It's not necessarily the straight across, the, the, not the diameter line. It's actually the circumference line that shrinks the most. Does that, does that make sense? So if you cut a board radially that they would call quarter sawn boards, actually shrink much less than a flat sawn board. They cut less, and, and that all has to do with that, that circumference line and the shrinking there. But lengthwise, I mean, if you cut a, a log to 12 feet and come back and measure it after it's completely dry, you're going to be pretty hard-pressed to read that on a tape measure, how much it's really shrunk. And that reminds me of an important part that they talked about. The pegs were actually drier than the green wood, and they were keeping those dry and solid and allowing the green wood to shrink down and tighten on the pegs as the building stayed built longer. I, I'd say that was one thing that impressed me about this video is not only were they managing to eliminate um, a lot of metal from being used for a lot of the joinery, with the exception of the roof and the floor, um, <clears throat> but uh, they were not, a lot of times I'll see people, oh, we're going to do a bunch of joinery, and then they're like out there with this 10-gallon bucket of glue and putting it in everything, and I did not see one bottle of glue anywhere, and it did seem to me, I always I always like that when they do that. It's like, okay, we're going to use a little bit of green wood. The green wood's going to shrink around the pegs, and that's, that's our glue. Captain Grippy right there. Now, they did do some stuff with some wedges, but, hey, that's to be expected when you're trying to get things set up. Yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway, all right, anything else on that space? Was that smooth for you? Nice and smooth. Yeah, for, good. For me. For you. All right, good. All right. So, <clears throat> uh, we saw them making the shingles. There was a guy there. He had a sawmill. He was uh, doing some slight adjustments and stuff, and he was he had cedar. They didn't try calling it a cypress then. They, they went with <laughs> cedar. And uh, everybody in the movie talked funny, you know. Um, 
they were in England. <laughs> they they did this. So there were, there were some English dreadlocks in the movie. I was actually quite surprised. I think I think they're bigger on it in England than we are here. <laughs> you know, so uh, no, no, maybe not necessarily Missoula. <laughs> Missoula is pretty big on the dreadlocks. Oh yeah, is it? I I guess I don't see them that often. I'm I'm used to like you know being over in the Seattle area the last you know five ten years or so and and um, I don't know like I go hang out at the Bullet Brothers and Dave Bainline's got like you know he's a big dreads guy but um, I I was even a dreadlocked woodsman at one point in in the height of my wood cutting career I think the longest hair on your head isn't even in a half an inch right now no sometimes you got to switch it up but switching it up okay all right I I should note that um, <laughs> if I cared about hairstyle at all all right uh, moving right along <clears throat> but hey the the shingles you were saying that if because they were doing it with a sawmill they were making cedar shingles with the sawmill so all the shingles were like exactly the same size which to me struck me as creepy but um <laughs> and now i've i've made some shakes with a fro and uh i and then you said something about making it with the sawmill versus making it with a fro yeah so when when you're making anything with a sawmill actually over splitting it you're actually creating you're not following the actual grain pattern you're actually just sawing a flat surface but when you build the shakes or or split rails or any of that type of thing you're actually following the grain of the wood anybody who's ever split firewood can can uh realize what that's all about. I mean, if you cut a piece that's really got some spiral grain in it, it does not come off parallel at all. And the actual act of splitting it rather than sawing it, it's it's not nearly as... Uh, it takes a lot more time to split them, obviously, than it, than it does to just cut them in a nice smooth jig. He made a lot of shakes really fast with that sawmill jig, which I, I think is awesome. They're still going to last a long time. But uh, the traditional shakes actually being split will actually repel water a lot better than a, than a sawn one because there isn't a, as much of a path for it to get down into the wood grain. It doesn't absorb it. It rolls right off because of the smoothness that has been, been split along the grain. Uh, the Japanese actually had a lot of techniques for doing that. With the, when they would finish, the wood would actually be finished uh, straight with the grain, and they were able to really make things last a, lot, a long time. And now that they've gone back and tried to replicate some of these buildings, they've had to go figure out some of those old techniques. So just to be clear, do you think it would last about twice as long maybe? Yeah, I think twice as long is a, is a pretty realistic number. You know, the, the beams are kind of an interesting thing. I've read some really interesting research on, on the Japanese that they're still trying to kind of figure out how they really finished some of that stuff and some of the hand tools. But they were having to, they, the replacement beams were rotting much, much quicker than the ones that basically lasted for hundreds of years. They were having to replace them faster. So trying to go back and figure it out. But, wow. Um, now, I, I, I thought a neat thing is when they got done making the roof, then, you know, you look up from underneath and you see the cedar shakes that are, you know, keeping you dry. And uh, and it went to a lot of trouble to make sure that, that uh, they left virtually zero gap between the, sh- the shakes, even though there was a fair bit of overlap and stuff like that. They're doing a, a very thorough job. Um, I was down in Coquille, Oregon uh, at Cobbville um, a couple years back, and uh, I remember uh, Ianto Evans pointing out a cedar shake roof. And it had lots of gaps. You're sitting underneath it, and you're looking up, 
there's gobs and gobs of gaps. And and he said something to me that made no sense, but it's Ianto Evans, so it must be true. Um, and, and it was clearly uh, a hand, uh, they were all hand split shakes. But but he said, um, when it rains, come on over to this shelter, that's the cedar shake roof, and you know try and sit underneath one of those gaps and see if it'll be a downpour. See if you feel one drop ever. And I'm like, you can see the sky outside, you know, through the roof. And you're thinking, this is going to leak like a sieve. And he was adamant, you won't feel a drop. And I don't understand how that can be, but he was very adamant that that was the case. You're looking mystified, as mystified as I believe I looked that day, which is why he was reiterating and extra adamant and stuff like that, because I was clearly a doofus with a blank expression on my face. You got nothing for me here, do you? No. I want to go try it now. Typically, uh, seeing sky from inside the building through the roof is something I try and avoid when I'm building a building. Unless it's a skylight, you don't want to see gaps in, in your cedar shakes normally, but now I want to go experiment. That's, that's what I thought, too. But he, in fact, I didn't even notice it. He pointed it out. Hmm. He, this was like an important thing to point out. Look at that. Look. You'll stay dry. And uh, if, if, if you don't believe me, come out here when it's pouring rain and sit out here and try and get wet. Just try it. Try. And, and so, uh, I don't know. It's, I mean, Ianto has done so many really incredible things. But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with the physics of it. Like maybe like the, 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 the shingles start to get a little bit of wet, and then the, uh, the raindrops fall, and they're drawn to the other water. I'm just making shit up. I don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe wet's a relative term. <laughs> maybe. You won't feel it nearly as many drops as if you were standing outside. That's what he meant. Well, it could have something to do with the water tension, too, on, on the cedar, that it actually can't drop through there. It's flowing downhill. I would imagine it depends on the pitch of the roof, too. It has a lot to do with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of ways. A lot of you know, and and uh, I, you know, I didn't get a chance to test it when I was there. Um, I, I left shortly after uh, uh, hearing about that. So, all right. Uh, next up, I've got uh, I've got pole building versus on piers. So they kind of they're they made a foundation ish thing. They <clears throat> they had. Uh, meter thick. See, there's that meter thing. Meter, <laughs> meter thick. Uh, uh, um, what was it? It was chalk, chalk, crushed chalk, and uh, and then they packed it. They had a big old packer machine thing there, and then they they put big slabs of rock on top of that, and then another rock on top of that rock, and then they uh, and then all the wood that would sit on top of that rock, they put black paint on that wood. Yeah, they did. It was just basically flat stones that uh, they set everything on, and then they kind of pinned the edges of the stones in place so that they wouldn't move in the setup. Uh, but there was no actual physical connection to the ground uh, on the post. The only thing that they did was they drove in uh, 
some deep wedges, basically, that had uh, cable on them. So once they, they drove them in um, with a jackhammer, yeah, with a jackhammer about, what did he say, about three meters down, something like that, and then they tensioned them up so that that wedge actually turned uh, and basically created a dead man under, underground. Um, and, and that was, they did that on the four corners of the building, uh, and that was all that they tied it down with, but the rest of it was just sitting there, which I thought was really interesting. No concrete at all. Well, I think they were trying to avoid concrete, but it seemed like, you know, they still brought in a little bit of paint for the bottom of those poles. Well, they said it was tree tar and citrus. Yeah. What is tree tar? Uh, I would imagine it's, it's some sort of uh, pine rosin or something. The resins of the tree is what I've always heard called. Uh, there's there's quite a few natural finishes actually you can buy that have tree res natural tree resins in them. The rest of the structure, I don't remember. I don't. I didn't see them painting anything. I didn't get the idea that they were talking about painting any, anything or staining anything. No. <clears throat> it was just raw wood. Yeah. No. No finish on the rest of the building <laughs> at that point, anyways. <clears throat> Did you notice that you have a turtle on the floor of your house? Yeah, that's pretty typical for a turtle to be wandering around. Yeah. Especially next to the fridge. I was actually hoping maybe the turtle would bring dinner or dessert. So you have you have a you have fridge turtles. Um, <laughs> that's got like about the shell's about what six to eight inches across or so, uh, guarding the food in your fridge, I guess. I've had the turtles for almost ten years. They were about the size of a quarter, and now they're larger than my hand. So now, do you have turtle food in the fridge, and the turtle sort of begging in the turtle-esque way? Well, if he'd roll over, I'd sure give him a biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do turtles eat biscuits? <laughs> they like dandelions. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. All right, well, um, the next thing is, is, is I kind of think that uh, if you're building a pole building, actually, which is what I was kind of hoping this structure was going to be, because, uh, um, you know, pole buildings go up so much faster, and they're so much sturdier. Um, you know, and it, it's just there's this, there's this issue of, um, you know, you want to keep the, po the pole, that's the part that's in the soil, you just, you just need to keep it from rotting. Yeah, I mean, there's no problem with getting a piece of wood wet. It just has to be able to dry, and you don't want it to stay wet the whole time. So that's, I mean, with pole structures, in, uh, in my knowledge of it, which is actually fairly limited, something Paul and I have been talking about more and more, but uh, is, is a real efficient way to build if you can make it long-term. And I guess I know for a fact that a lot of timber frame and log buildings have lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years, but the weak points have always been where they touch stone or, or, or a place where there was wicking moisture all the time. So it's a point of concern. Right. And and so my you know my impression is is that usually it has to do with where uh, like if you've got wood touching soil and that soil gets wet then it's it's a point of rot. But even if it's soil and it's dry, you can have dry rot. And and so then I kind of think to myself like, well, you know, the design needs to be that it's the soil is kept dry. Like I've I've been in barns that were so massive, so incredibly massive that in, in it's an all dirt floor that the dirt on the inside is just a powder because it's been so dry for so long. And 
know, I mean, you could talk about moving animals in there or something, and they'll piss on stuff and wet it up a bit and get it going. But for the most part, it just seems so so crazy, crazy dry. So it just seems like you could do pole stuff right there because it's just so damn dry. And then I think, well, if it's going to be that dry and there's no water moving around, why not mix a little bit of borax in there, you know, and, and then any kind of thing that's going to cause rot is going to um, dodge the borax and therefore your pole is going to be perfectly fine. It's just a matter of part of the architecture needs to be to keep the pole stone dry all the time. A big thing that Caleb and I talk about a lot is roof overhangs on any structure, keeping sun damage and moisture damage away from the foundation of your home. You look at most modern homes and there's hardly any roof overhang. And, you know, then that makes me think about disposable construction anyway. But that's not what this is about. And so when they make those homes like that with no overhang, is that nice and smooth for the ladies? No, absolutely not. That's it's right. The most disgusting sighting I've ever seen. <laughs> well, so then you're like, you have to make the whole house waterproof. Yeah. Then they wonder why they have water in their crawl space with a one-foot overhang, you know, in June. So I think that's another big part of the whole thing is, is what climate are you really in? Can you keep that ground dry, you know? I mean, there's certain climates. Maybe a pole structure really isn't a good idea. Or maybe it it is, but it's a temporary idea. Maybe you just build in the idea that, hey, you know what? In 40 years, I'm going to have to go dig this pole out and replace it. No big deal if you plan on it. And the other thing, you know, I know you've talked about before, too, is burning the bottoms of those posts. I've seen some really awesome results. I mean, in, in Canada, that's how every fence post was when I was on the island there. And that's, I mean, you're talking about a very, very moist climate there, too. And they're, all their fence posts, they buried a lot of different things there, and they just burned the bottoms of them all. And they all swore that they were 20 years, they were, you know, they were fine. And a fence post is going to be totally exposed to wet soil all the time. You know, all, all your life, especially in a really wet climate like that. So, and and uh, yeah, I've I've heard a lot about that one, that one too. Um, and so, yeah, don't build a pole structure in a swamp. That's not going to go well. Although you think of it, that's kind of like what the well, and, and they do it in the seawater, but that's different. That's salt water, which doesn't have the issues that we're going to have with fresh water and soil. Yeah, the stilt houses that they have in some places. When it, it it's actually the line between where the wood is completely wet and dry because you can actually submerge wood underwater and it will be fine my family caretakes a uh, place on Flathead Lake it's got a dock that has uh, two stories basically and all they did was they took about 14 inch logs and uh, piled drove them down into the into the stone in about 1970s mid 70s and so now just the last few years they've started rotting and they only rot at waterline below the waterline they're completely fine and above they're completely fine. It's just that point where they're, they're constantly getting wet and then dry and then wet and dry. I would imagine it has some other things to do with it, too. Oxygen. Yep, oxygen, exactly. Feeding the little microbial dudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're eating the wood. Yep. Mm-hmm. But that lasted 30-plus years. But now it's completely failing. But. <laughs> so that just goes to show, I mean, that is in a pretty extreme environment. I mean, you can't really get any more wet. And you can't really test it any more than that. Right. And that's fresh water. I, I think yeah. if, it was, yeah. if it was salt water, it would probably be doing fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, let's see. That's 
got that one and um, pole burning. Okay, um, they were boiling some water to steam some logs. I never quite got it figured out what they. So they were steaming a mess of logs so they could bend them and use them in their structure. And I guess I missed the part like where those went. Did you guys see where they went? Yeah, it's they built a uh, curved roof structure. So it's uh, they had one end of the wall plate was actually fully curved, and also a bunch of the rafters were also curved. Uh, so it's not it wasn't just a straight gable roof line. Uh, actually, almost the whole thing had quite a few curves in it. They did a lot of steam bending, and so the technique that they used basically they just had basically a large campfire with a 55-gallon drum full of water on top of it and pipes hooked to that that went to a long tube, which was their steam chamber, and then they packed clay and straw. They'd stick a log through it and then just seal it off with some clay and straw and let it, the thing steam for three hours. And they'd pull out a four-inch log and then take it over and set it in their rack, and a guy would sit on it, and then they'd clamp it They'd clamp it down with ratchet straps. And it was pretty impressive how well the steaming was actually working, but... Paul needs to go build him a, a rocket stove for it instead of just that campfire. Yeah, I was kind of looking at that campfire thing. I needed a rocket stove going on right there. Although when you're building a wood structure, there's plenty of wood scraps, so maybe it was part of the, the cleanup. Uh, they should build hugo culture instead. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. They should. That extra wood. Yes, they should. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, his, I mean, Bin Law, I mean, his books are about permaculture. I just kind of want to... You know, but and he must not know about rocket stoves. Maybe that's what I, I'm guessing that's what I'm on. So it's kind of like we need to have some uh, cross pollination across the pond or something is what we need. So <clears throat> maybe you guys need to go over to England and visit with uh, Ben Law. Let's go. Will Seth come with us? Yeah. Well, Seth's kind of over over that yeah. away. I was thinking a Seth yeah. detour. Yeah, as long as you're over there. And, you know, I, I always kind of thought that if anybody ever goes over to Seb's place, I mean, you're about five hours away from Dominor. Have you guys heard of Dominor? Mm-hmm. So it's this community in Italy. It's um, very high on art. It's really beautiful stuff. They've got this great big book of it's fancy pictures. It's, it's really amazing. You guys should bring a camera. Yeah. Um, no way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh what, you want to talk about some of the items on your list? Yeah, you're crossing yours off pretty quick there. Uh, half done. So the other one that uh, I wanted to talk about a little bit was round wood versus square timber framing. And uh, we That have, does seem like the key to the whole damn movie. With the round wood, <laughs> yes, which I think is just awesome. I think the, the natural... More the ladies. <laughs> yes, the ladies like the, the natural look. <laughs> that crux. <laughs> the crux. The crux. That's my favorite style. Where what the hell is that? Yeah, so he didn't almost like a curved A-frame type. Uh, oh, right. Frame. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mark Vandermeer's building some of that stuff. He's powerful, keen on it. Yeah. That's that's the type of the the bent framing that they would call. Is it called a timber frame bent? And they were doing a, a crux style bent. Anyways, the difference between round wood and square timber, really we were talking a little bit about the time that it would actually take to make it. Like, is it more efficient to go saw that log up and then go out and uh, cut your joinery in it because it's really quick then. All you need is a tape measure and a square. You don't really need a specialized skill set. 
I think there's a lot of advantages to the round wood besides just the aesthetics too. They are really, really beautiful structures, and the fact that you're not putting a lot of energy into actually manufacturing it is, is a really big, big advantage. I think the square, square timber for people who come from more of a traditional uh, carpentry background, what we call a traditional carpentry background now, you know, uh, using an air nailer to nail two by fours together, then uh, square timbers are a lot easier. I've had a lot of experience, you know, with with that where the guys can just use the same saw. It's you know not a specialized, so many specialized chisels. They don't have to touch a chainsaw, you know. So there's a little bit of overlap there that's a lot more efficient. But as far as the time of actually building it, somebody who's more efficient with the the, the round wood joinery typically takes longer, typically. But if you take somebody who's really good at it and start figuring out the amount of man hours to actually build it round wood or with square, I think it's pretty much a wash. I really think it is. By the time you figure out how much energy went into to actually sawing the wood. But there isn't, uh, not everybody is going to pick up the round wood stuff quite as fast. But then the other aspect is it, of it is how straight is your square wood? Because that's another one. If it's not perfectly straight, I mean, wood doesn't end up in this perfect little box that we think that it is. When we draw it in AutoCAD as a nice 20-foot <laughs> long straight piece, it never shows up on the job site that way. So you really, I think, to be uh, a master of the skill anyways, you really have to know how to deal with those uh, different shapes anyways. So that's where crossing into the round wood really isn't a big deal at all. And don't you think that there is extra time in allowing that wood to dry, excuse me, to dry and to maybe be canted and then re-sawn in order to be square? That would take just as much time as the round wood joinery? Oh, absolutely. But it, I think it, for most of the traditional building, you know, if you're going to have, if you're going to just hire regular carpenters to do your frame, then, then square wood is the, is the advantage. But that wasn't at all what he was talking about either. I mean, that's really the advantage to the round wood stuff here is that, hey, I own 20 acres. It's got a whole bunch of fairly small diameter trees. I'm only going to build this building. I don't want to buy a sawmill. I don't want to do all these things. I can go down and buy a chainsaw and some chisels, and I can go build my house. Like that is just awesome. I really think that's the way a lot more people need to go in order to feel like they actually live in a home, not just some house, you know, that is so conventional, just like your neighbors, I guess. Some, some cookie-cutter house. It yeah. looks like just like everybody else's. Yeah. And some spec home. Yeah. yeah. Um, Daniel, yeah, they're all exactly the same. So, um... <clears throat> I do think that the, the structure that he ended up with there is is a damn fine looking structure, and, and I do think that when when doing this stuff with round wood, it, it does turn out far better than if you you know are, are using a bunch of uh, 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 cut wood, you know, sawn sawn wood. Um, and uh, um, so I I was thinking, yeah, yeah, I'll bring it. That yeah. that's the stuff. So it's you know it, I was thinking that for a lot of folks it would be worth the extra. But the big thing is, is that yeah, you you can dodge this rather expensive piece of equipment and still have an awesome structure. Um, and uh, and plus, there's like that that you know. And, and in this one, he did bring in some other big equipment during the day of the build. Um, it looked like there was a tractor there. Uh, and then there's the thing that, that stomps all the the chalk, um, and uh, so there were there were you know there was equipment, big equipment. 
I was brought in. But I, I do kind of think that uh, um, I, I know that there's that guy in Wales who's got that really beautiful house that he built for 5,000 pounds. So that would be like, what, 7,000 bucks or so. And uh, I think he did that all by himself. This thing, when we watched, that was another thing, is, is I was kind of thinking, boy, they've got a lot of bodies there, but they needed a lot of bodies. You know, um, that was like that was like a group thing. But I think a lot of a lot of uh, the, the, the timber framing stuff needs a lot of bodies. It, it definitely helps. I've done a lot of it by myself, and you definitely have to work in sizes of material that that you can work on. Uh, handling it thing on your, on your own. The other thing that we should mention too is that they actually raised this whole frame, which had a it was almost uh, probably 16 foot to the ridge line. They raised the whole thing by hand. There was never a crane or anything there. They did it all with uh, with basically it was like a big come along winch that was. I was really impressed with. I had some tool envy over that one. That was a pretty nice <laughs> piece of equipment. But that's basically what they used the tractor for, from what I saw. Maybe they used some material uh, handling there too with the tractor, but looked mainly like they attached this this large winch to the back of it and then uh, raised all the frame with a system of tripods and uh, lots of different guy wires. And there's a lot that goes into raising a frame by hand. That is something that uh, is very very difficult and takes a lot of, of manpower and a lot of specialized skill. You know the way they had it set up, I was kind of thinking, I wonder I wonder if they cut out the part where the uh, back end of the tractor went up in the air. As as they were doing this, um, because tractors, while being very heavy, I usually they they fill the tires up with liquid stuff. Uh, uh, I'm thinking probably not heavy enough for what they were trying to do, and so I. But but then they just edited that out later, maybe. Yeah. But I don't know. What do you think? He, I think he had some really. He he was definitely a master of mechanical advantage, yeah. and that was something that I would really like to. He didn't go into talking about the raising a lot, but I would love to just go back and sit and pause it and just nitpick really how he set up all the different tackles and I mean he really that's that's an amazing feat to be a rigger of, of, of that uh, class and I'm sure this was a small building compared to what he's actually raised by hand and that's a serious uh, cost savings I mean when you're paying a hundred dollars or a hundred dollars plus an hour for a crane it is very I mean that can add a lot of cost to your system you know to your frame right there so pretty impressive skill to have Plus, you have to have access for that crane to get to yeah. the building site. And I think it's important to note that eight of eight, the eight of these people working on it, one of them was a woman. So I think that that either speaks to the success of his mechanical advantage or the necessity of needing to have the mechanical advantage. So let it be known that the sexist out of the three of us is the woman who had to, had to focus on gender. Well, I just think it's important because women can do it, and I think it's yeah. just important to say that it is possible because not even just that she was a woman, but there could be men lady-sized. Yeah. <laughs> well, they were there to monitor what is nice and smooth for the ladies, but I, actually I think there might have been, I think there were several women there. I mean, if nothing yeah. else, coming and going throughout the whole project, there were, there, but, it, but it was mostly it was mostly guys, but but there I think there was more than one woman. Yeah. And I think the reason I'm bringing this up is because I just had this conversation with my sister, who also works in construction that most of the world does feel like those are things men do, but women can do it too. 
Yeah. Um, did, I didn't say women couldn't, did you? No. no. It's just no. It's normally <laughs> a uh, smelly, grunty uh, type of activity that you don't always see refined women doing. So it's awesome to see. The other thing, uh, it seems like they did a little bit of a workshop there. They also had a couple of people there that uh, had never done any woodworking either. And the school that I went to in Canada, I mean, there was there was a few people there that literally had never used a skill saw. They had never picked one up. I mean, it was there was some obvious, like, concern in their eye, you know, but they just decided they wanted to do it, and they went and did it. And, I mean, it's as complex as it is, it's not something that can't be learned in several weeks and go build your own home. I mean, I've seen it firsthand on multiple occasions. So it's it's pretty awesome how you can you can learn how to do it in a short amount of time. I, I think having nervousness around a skill saw, skill saw is a healthy thing. I mean, that thing can bite. And, and I've known several guys where um, they experienced the bite and, and they're missing fingers or stuff. You know, bad things happen. Chainsaw is so, another good one. So, and, and then as far as like the requirements or what we expect of uh, people that work in construction that coming to the sites, I mean, we were talking about male versus female. Now, my, my brother works in construction and he, he's a, um, a lead guy. You know, he, he runs a crew. And uh, his expectation is, is that anybody who comes to work for him ends up like being stoned all day and then he fires them. So his he seems to find a special thrill out of firing these stoned people. Uh, so, but I, as there's a lot of people stoned in the construction world. I understand. Uh, not really in my experience so much. Uh, I think there's a lot of different people in the construction world. That's what I'll say. There's a lot of different dynamics from really nice people to a lot of jerks. To, I mean, it's just a wild, wild, wide range. So probably just like almost anything else, like yeah. even, even permaculture. Some of the yeah. people are kinder than others. So, um, uh, all right. Well, I don't even remember what was the topic. Did we get, did we get through the one about the women? What are we good? Well, I was just thinking maybe that's what the song meant, that the building had gone nice and smooth for the ladies. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe that's what it was. Maybe that's what it was. So uh, maybe, does that mean that, the, that they didn't have to sweat as much? That one woman looked like she was not going to uh, uh, lighten her load anyway. It looked like when they were carrying that log, she was putting in three times the effort of everybody else. She was going to make sure that she was doing the lion's share of carrying that log, and no one could question it. I, maybe she was insecure because Grandma put her skirt or <laughs> pulled her skirt up and mixed her the earthen floor with her feet and was letting it all hang out. What was she letting it hang out? I guess I missed that part. Oh, she just had all of her clothes tucked up, you know, way up, letting her underwear hang out. What, she had bloomers on or something as opposed to panties or what? I think so. Bloomers. <laughs> uh, maybe she wore bloomers for the occasion. And they all, basically they're like shorts, you know. She wore some shorts under her dress. <laughs> all right. Kind of. I, I guess I don't know. I, maybe we need to back it up and go look and see what this gal's got on underneath her skirt. I was, I guess I must have been watching something else. Uh, I'll, I'll have to monitor it closely next time. <laughs> All right. Um, <clears throat> oh, next thing on your list. Uh, I was just going to touch real quick. I wrote down about the, the scribe techni techniques that they were using. And uh, basically what they did was they built uh, what essentially looked like a floor box, basically, of, uh, of wood framing. It looked like they were just going to put boards on it. But what it was is they built it underneath a tent structure. And what it was is was a type of... Uh, 
uh, not exactly French scribe technique, but the idea was that they built uh, this floor frame that uh, had specific points on it that were specific points in the actual building layout. So say the bottom of the post and to the peak of the ridge beam, uh, the top of the wall height. So basically they laid all these different points out beforehand and they would drag over their round wood, they'd set it on top of there and they had specific points that they would roll it to on a, as a template. And then they would set the next piece of round wood on top of that and uh, they weren't pulling out their tape measures basically to lay out all this this uh, profile of the building. It was laid out once in this floor structure, then they'd roll the wood on it, put all the pieces together, scribe them, uh, do all the joinery that they needed to do, and then they were done. So everything came out exactly the same, uh, which in, in round wood construction and in uh, more reclaimed or twisted pieces, uh, any of that kind of stuff, any, any non- perfectly square type material is really the, the best way to do it. Uh, anybody who's really looking into doing that, I would definitely recommend uh, checking that type of building out. Even for uh, square timbers that are really irregular, French scribe is, is an awesome way to build. So now, um, one of the things that they had going on in this building is is that the core of the building was using an A-frame for, for strength in that direction. Yeah, and that would be, that falls in the same line as the, uh, <laughs> it's more of a traditional, uh, actually European style frame that would also be called a crux frame. But basically it looks like a giant letter A in the center of it, uh, and that A shape goes from, from the bottom of the post of the wall all the way up to the ridge beam, and then off of that A on the outside you actually have some straight vertical posts that create your wall line, and then uh, there's some bracing and, and some other rafters in there as well. All right. Um, my next item on the list is that uh, at one point I wrote down that they don't have to pre-drill cedar shingles. And so I think they were talking about other hardwoods like, like oak. You know, oak, and so they, I guess if they're going to put an oak shingle up, they would have to drill holes in it before they can attach it. Yeah, and... Uh I got the feeling that actually those shakes were actually, they talked about them being pretty green. They were cut pretty green. Uh, being as thin as they are, they are going to dry fairly fast, and cedar does anyways. Um, but then they also talked about the nails that they were using. They hand-nailed every single shingle on that building with, uh, I believe, they, they talked about stainless and copper nails and then one other type that I can't remember. I, I can't remember either, but I do remember that they were very emphatic. They had used exact, this very particular kind of nail because of the acids in the cedar itself. Yeah, the tannins will eat certain nails, and if you've ever been back to a, a deck or treated wood or something that didn't have the right screws put in it, you'll be surprised at how fast it actually eats them, and you do not want all those cedar shakes you just nailed by hand blowing off in the second winter, you know. So I remember being a kid and uh, living with my aunt and uncle, and uh, they had this great big awesome deck, and one of the jobs that I was given was to go out before company arrived and pound all the nails back in on the deck. So then they put their flooring in with straight nails, and I was thinking, you know, why not use screws or at least toenail the nails or something? Yeah, I kind of thought the same thing. I think they did use quite a few ring shank nails, though, also, which actually do a pretty good job of, of holding into the wood.
would. But uh, personally, yeah, I would have. I would have thought at least for the inside decking, which they left exposed. I guess we should mention that the building actually had a roof, but it was uh, more of an outdoor classroom in this particular case. So it had cedar boards all the way around uh, for the, for the decking uh, that were gapped. So it was more like just a big covered deck. Uh, but they did hand nail all that, and we're expecting it to to get wet and weathered. So that kind of leads me to, um, you know, for a classroom, and granted, it's a, a lovely structure, and maybe someday they'll throw more walls on it and people will move into it someday or something, I don't know, <clears throat> nice, strong structure. Um, but, you know, the, the, the Bullock Brothers, I don't, I'm sure neither of you have been out to the Bullock Brothers. They've got an interesting thing where they've got, like, uh, four poles that are probably 20 feet or better in length that meet at an apex you know, something approximately short of 20 feet in the air. And then they've got a canvas thing, which uh, I think I heard described as like a a, uh, a flying shelter or something like that. But, but anyway, they've got this kind of conical, shallow conical canvas thing with, that, that's like, uh, and you can easily get 100 people under this. This this thing and it, and it seems to work. I've been there several times when it was raining. It was working exceptionally well. So um, I I just kind of think surely that didn't cost very much and they probably set it up in just a few hours and um, uh, it seemed incredibly awesome and uh, I don't know uh, this structure certainly looked more industrial strength I suppose. But I, I was kind of thinking that I would that the, the time that each would last would be about the same maybe. But anyway, so you haven't seen this. You guys don't even know about the structure that I'm talking about. But I am thinking that this other thing seemed simpler for an outdoor classroom and very awesomely effective. I think this without seeing that other structure as, as this one was just so beautiful that I think it would just be an incredible place to go and learn I mean it, structures have to function but they also have to have a, a, a beauty and a feeling surrounding them as well really to be complete in, in my mind so obviously I mean I put up one log and a tarp and had a shelter you know but it right. wasn't necessarily some place that well, and this is a big part of stuff that he's teaching, so it's a good thing to have the classroom there for it. And I think that's just about timber framing in general. It's not about slapping something together in a hurry. It's about the craft. It's about a time-honored craft and about being a craftsman. Very good point. Yeah. I mean, it literally is taken to the point of religion in, in a lot of countries, especially the Japanese tradition. It really is. I mean, well, it is for now. They kind of lost it there for a while, though, didn't they? I mean, it's like a reborn thing, maybe? Because you were just saying that they've forgotten some stuff. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of techniques that really were kind of lost, but I think that's... The, the, and part of that has to do with the how they kept secrets about certain certain skills that they'd, that they'd acquired, too, with the different guilds, but... You know what? Over there by the turtle, there's a black cat, and then there's a there's a smaller black cat. <laughs> Who are you um, meeting for the first time? Uh, is this what's going on? And and you know, are the cats aware of the turtle? Is the turtle? I think the turtle kind of moved into his shell. He's all he all doesn't care about the black cat. He's good. I think the black cat supposed to notice the turtle. <laughs> So, are we going to see a cat fight since they're just meeting for the first time? 
Well, pod people would never see the cat fight, but they may get a chance to hear it. <laughs> All right, so the entertainment level could be going up. We're recording this for posterity. You know, one thing else I wanted to say, too, about the Roundwood building, they also brought in one wall was was enclosed by cordwood, which is also another form of roundwood building. It's small sections of round logs kind of built with a mortar or clay and mud mix in between. And I do think the roundwood building and the cordwood wall are more complementary. And so they did have part of the building enclosed as well, I just wanted to mention. Yeah, just one end. Um, and, and I think if you're going to be, like, open like that, yeah, cordwood is going to be fine. Um, a lot of people have have had. I, I've been to a lot of places that do cordwood, and um, there were lots of uh, of gaps. Um, and uh, there were. Uh, and what happens is that, is that even if you dried the wood a whole bunch, it will sometimes shrink a little bit more. Now I've got a video up on YouTube of a guy that did one, and 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 it was awesome. He had very little shrinkage, but he also took the long path of making sure that he did it very, very right. So, but I've been to places where the gaps were immense, and and then people are like freaking out and like trying to fill the gaps with all kinds of things and stuff. But you know, for a structure like that, it's like you get some gaps. Who really cares? <laughs> you know, it's like you're already outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think the only way that it comes in then is if it became a structural issue, but then also it's just a reflection again of the craft and the craftsman, which is why there's so much attention to detail. Right, and then they filled up the gaps between the um, the, the logs mm-hmm. uh, with uh, cob, although they kind of kept switching between calling it cob and calling it clay, even though it had sand and straw in it, uh, and uh, you know, that was a little, I was a little, getting a little confused, but I think they were just using those terms universally, exchanging them and stuff like that, and, and you mentioned the fireplace, which is a Rumford, mm-hmm. which I, I think the, the Rumford thing is pretty cool, um, there's, even if you're a big fan of the uh, the rocket mass heater, uh, I think I think that there's a lot of room to have both. Uh, a rocket mass heater and a Rumford fireplace. In fact, uh, I looked at a place that Ianto Evans was building for himself to move into for his next place, uh, and it had both. It had a rocket mass heater on one end, and it had a Rumford on the other end, and it was like a pretty small little structure. So um, I think that's my whole list. I'm done. Yeah, the other thing, uh, they, they did cordwood on this particular building. Uh, they went through Ben's house a little bit, one, uh, the roundwood structure that he did. Uh, that one, he used uh, straw bale walls with plaster. Uh, he also mentioned a little bit, not not in real depth, but I got the feeling that uh, they were wattle and daub walls on the other building that they did where it's a mixture of uh, sticks, basically, as an infill. Um, and then they're putting a, a type of plaster on top of that, which is a real European tradition that is just awesome for the preservation of the wood and everything else. Uh, those plastered walls, in the traditional sense, when they did get wet, would actually wick a lot of the moisture away from the timber, too, which is a big reason why uh, a lot of the traditional European buildings had wood exposed to the outside, but have still survived all these years and, and are completely sound. So a couple different ways of, of infilling them also. Okay, what else you got on your list there? I think 
Oh, the battery-powered chainsaw. I did want to mention that one. That was one I had not seen. That was pretty cool. i got to go find one of those. <laughs> I think that would be kind of nice to have for a few little projects. You know, at one point in the movie, too, they did show a little motor that they had rigged up to help speed up the dowel, or I mean the peg pencil sharpener tool. And so they did have some ways to kind of speed up the process, but I do think, you know, in I'm just thinking about the comparison to a pole structure versus the round wood timber framing structure. It just really is about the craft. That's a lot of the difference, you know. The other thing uh, in the extras, which we did watch uh, just a little bit of them at the beginning, it goes through uh, Ben's off-grid system, too, at, at his home there and the workshop, which I thought was really cool to kind of walk through that in, the, in this type of DVD. For a lot of people that aren't familiar with that, he kind of walked through the solar system that he had. Uh, all of his actual home is all DC-powered. He's not running an inverter for his home. He, uh, he had a 2,500-watt inverter that was for his workshop for running all the, the different tools there that were AC-powered. So that, that was really cool. He's got a couple different – he's got a windmill there, a couple different solar arrays. At one point, it did show a picture of him on the roof shoveling the snow off of his solar panels, and I turned to Paul and said, that's why you should put him on the pole in your yard when you do it because climbing way up on the roof to shovel the snow off your solar panels isn't that much fun when you're off-grid. I thought that part of the DVD was a really awesome addition for a timber framing DVD to actually add what I thought was one of the better little off-grid segments. Not a lot of detail, but kind of walk through a few of the things. So that was really cool all in all. I thought this was an awesome DVD. Uh, ben Law's The Man. I've been really excited to, to see some more of his stuff. Uh, I was really, really impressed with everything that he had. Thanks, Ben. I, I, I agree. I, I really enjoyed the DVD. Um, and and I, 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 constantly, I, I feel like whenever I'm looking at Ben Law's books, or even at this DVD, I'm, I'm learning tons of stuff. And, and granted, I, I have a powerful urge to go over there and do rocket mass heater stuff, which I'll probably never do. But uh, I, I still, uh, so I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm bashing on his stuff there. But uh, I'm, I'm always excited about his stuff, and, I'll, and, and I need to get more time in doing uh, green woodworking stuff. I absolutely enjoyed the DVD, and I think it had a lot of good, useful information. And even if there is things that we needed to discuss, I think it opens up a door for a lot of discussion and kind of bringing it to everybody, which is all what it's all about. So, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about things that are nice and smooth for the ladies, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. (laughs) 